Let's pray. Father, we come before your throne today and again ask that you would speak into our hearts and um, guide us, Lord, through this text that we've uh, prepared. And I pray in the midst of all these things, you would speak to our hearts and you would shape and mold us evermore and to be like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. That's right. <laughs> well, the first question we face at this point is, how am I going to preach a sermon on Colossians 2, 16 through 23 to keep your attention because of the things we've just talked about? Well, we'll see that the text that we have today is by God's providence in that uh, it's the perfect text for what we're just talking about. All of this will be perfectly relevant to all of us because all of us are called by God. What we're going to do is look at the call of, call of God. The call of God to God's people is threefold. We are first called to know Jesus Christ. This is our call to salvation when we respond to the invitation to surrender our hearts and lives to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The Apostle Paul spoke of this when he said, uh, talked about those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And also in Romans 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose. If you're looking in your Bibles, I'm not there yet. <laughs> uh, in, in this calling, we see the immeasur immeasurable canon sized, deep pit of the grace of God in his divine initiative in saving us. In Ephesians 1.4, we read that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians 2, we read that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which with he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we've been saved. In John, John chapter 1, the apostle writes, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. Everyone whom God chooses is called by God to know Jesus by the grace of God. That is our first calling, to, to know Jesus. And after we respond to that call to know Jesus, we are then called to follow Jesus. This is our call of sanctification or to go deeper in our faith with a relationship with God and a relationship with uh, the Holy Spirit, seeking to grow into a, a completion or a maturity in Jesus Christ. In Luke 9, Jesus proclaimed, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. This is the call that's put on our lives. In Galatians 2.20, Paul declares, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Paul said also in Philippians 1 that I am sure of this, that he who began the good work in your and you will bring to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. All, already in Colossians, we've seen so much of this calling. Paul says these things in chapter 1. And so from the day we heard, I have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. After we get to know Jesus, we are called to follow Jesus. God's word then tells us that after we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior and we respond to the call to follow Jesus, we are then called, all of us, to serve Jesus. This call is grounded in the Great Commission where Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The foundation of the call to serve is in the Great Commission. It's a call to passionately proclaim the glory of God in Christ for the joy of all people. Christ in you, the hope of glory, like we've seen not too long ago. So these are the three calls of God to those who claim Jesus Christ. We are to know Jesus. We are to follow Jesus. We are to serve Jesus. This is our common calling, brothers and sisters, all of us, whoever we are, whatever we do, wherever we live, from the moment we come to faith until we die and or Jesus comes back, we are to follow these calls. Now, in the midst of these callings, in God's divine wisdom, he has seen fit to extend a separate call to some to serve Jesus in a different way a full-time vocational serving kind of way. Now, this is not a human idea. From the Old Testament to the New, God frequently, often called people, set aside people for himself to do his work. In the Old Testament, we see that that in the high priests, they were full-time servants. Abraham was called to leave his home and travel to a, a place to serve God. In Romans 1.1, Paul called himself a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. In Ephesians 4, Paul tells us that God calls apostles and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to the building up of the body of Christ. Today, those who serve in full-time service are pastors and associate pastors and evangelists and missionaries and chaplains and Bible teachers and colleges and universities and seminaries and others who do other things for the cause of Christ. And in the Bible, we see reflection of this calling as Jesus walked along the shore of Galilee and he called Peter and Andrew to follow him. This is the call of God. He speaks to you and says, follow me. 
they sac sacrificially had to give up their fishing nets, their occupation, to follow Jesus full time. In this, we also see a place for academic education as the call to full time Christian service includes the call to be prepared. While they didn't go to school, they spent three years at the feet of Jesus learning to be disciples. Going where Jesus wanted them to go. Doing what Jesus wanted them to do. Serving where Jesus told them to serve. This is the call Nancy and I and our family have been responding to over the past three decades. And in being called by God to full-time vocational service, it's a given that we must know Jesus and follow Jesus and serve Jesus. God has called us to do these things, and he expects that we will do them. And we have humbly tried to do so to the best of our ability. But the reality is, at times, we have stumbled in doing what God expects from us. And we've stumbled at times in doing what the church expects from us. And this is the truth also, that there are times that what God expects from us is a polar opposite of what the people of God want out of us. Thus today, we still have conflict in churches and we still have a shortage of pastors. Why is it that those of us who claim Jesus Christ struggle with God and struggle with each other and struggle in responding to these three calls, to the call to know and to follow and to serve. Why is that? One word, preeminence. Remember, Paul talked about this not too long ago, three weeks ago. Three weeks ago, we were, God's word declared to us that Jesus is to be supreme and dominant and preeminent over everything in our lives. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything... Everything, everything, he must be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. When Jesus is not preeminent over everything in our lives, brothers and sisters, our thoughts and our behaviors and our attitudes and our beliefs, and their decisions and their responses will not be in line of the expectations of God's callings. In his book, No Place for Truth, Dr. David Wells writes, the capacity for ultimate knowledge that we are given by our Creator is a fearful thing when it is unhitched to the knowledge of our sin. The uncoupling, excuse me, this uncoupling gives rise to individuals who are unsuspicious about themselves, who infuse their own ideas with divine authority, who are oblivious to the inherent darkness of their own human nature. The spiritual decline we are currently experiencing 
within the evangelical community in North America is a result of the removal of the centrality of, the, of God in the workplace, in the public square, and in the hearts of God's people. The primary sense of our calling is not to self, but rather than that, to pursue the glory of God-centeredness. If Jesus is to be preeminent over everything, he then needs to be the standard for everything we think, say, and do. And brothers, we must, brothers and sisters, we must acknowledge that we live in a predominantly secular culture and we are under constant pressure to conform to the views and beliefs and values of the world we live in. And because we also live in the age of individualism and entitlement and personal freedom, we make our assessments and we form our expectations through the lens of self. And the truth is, because we still possess a fallen nature, we're all guilty of doing this. We tend to evaluate and judge other people by our own personal standards and expectations regarding what is acceptable and what is not. And because that's true for all of us, we usually have little tolerance for people who say things and do things differently than we do, which is nothing more than legalism. By definition, legalism is a strict, literal, or excessive conformity to religious or moral code. We are legalistic when we evaluate or judge others or one another by religious or moral code of our own personal expectations. Left unchecked, that legalism of personal expectation ultimately leads to hard-heartedness, prejudice, bigotry, hatred, discrimination, and racism. Legalism is also defined as a strict, literal, excessive conformity to the law. This kind of legalism, as it relates to our faith in Jesus Christ, is the belief that we can do something to gain God's favor. Spiritual legalism is our human attempt to gain our salvation or make progress in our walk with God by our outward conformity to our list of do's and don'ts. This is the kind of legalism that's disguised very often in Christian terms and in Christian behaviors. And this is the issue that Paul is addressing in our text for today. Now, remember Paul had written this letter to the Colossians because some in the church were believing and teaching false beliefs that were based on worldly values and human philosophies. Paul had been exhorting them to make Jesus preeminent in their lives, to pursue completeness in Jesus, to allow Jesus to be sufficient in all things, to live out Christ in you, the hope of glory. Legalism grows where something or someone other than Jesus is allowed to be preeminent or completeness or fulfilled hope or sufficient. Paul began to make his case against legalism in our text last week when he argued that our greatest protection against deception is the complete sufficiency we have in Jesus Christ. In Christ, Paul said, none of us needs anything more because we already have received Christ. Last week we saw that 
Jesus is sufficient because in Jesus we have a complete salvation, a complete forgiveness, and complete victory. The sufficiency Paul spoke of here is the sufficiency of our legal standing before God. So what Paul is telling us that our greatest protection against spiritual deception is to remember the sufficiency that we have in Jesus Christ. What he told us was, in Christ we've been spiritually circumcised. In Christ we are buried with him in baptism. In Christ we've been made alive together with Christ. We've been forgiven of our transgressions and sins. As the record of our sin, our debt that stood against us was canceled when Jesus nailed it to the cross. In Christ we have a complete victory. In Christ we have been legally set free. We are saved by God's grace. We grow in faith and by the power of God's grace. And by God's grace we are freed from the penalty of sin and death. And once we come to embrace the truth that by the mercy of God, Jesus has paid the price for all of our sin, we will then truly know freedom in Christ. As Jesus said in John 8, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The best protection against spiritual deception is to remember that we are free. But the free the Bible talks about is not so much the free the way we see it. Up to this point, Paul has been telling us that in Christ we've been given freedom from sin and death. But freedom that we have in Christ is not the freedom that the world knows. For freedom in time, the freedom that we have in Christ is the freedom not to live for ourselves, but the freedom to live for God. But when we use freedom in a way that is legalistic, we find ourselves practicing religious legalism. So I invite you to open your Bibles at this point and we'll go to Colossians 2, start at um, verse 16. And we're going to see in our text for today that Paul tells us in order to live out that legal freedom we have, we need to see and know the legalistic religion that comes out of this. The first form of religious legalism we see often in the, our lives and in the church is ritualism. Paul writes, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So Paul begins by saying, Therefore, which means because, uh, what was behind it. So because Jesus is supremely sufficient, freeing us from the penalty for our sins, saving us from eternal death, and freeing us to live for Christ, we must not fall victim to ritualism. Ritualism is defined as excessive devotion to religious habits, customs, and ceremonies. Now, the Apostle Paul in his day, the Jews were following food restrictions and special diets and observed certain ceremonies and holy days that rose out of the practices in the Old Testament. Over time, 
following these restrictions and diets and observance and holy days came to be where they used those to judge your spiritual maturity. These particular ceremonies were connected to different parts of our time, year, month, and week. The new moon we're talking about is a moon monthly observance. The Sabbath came every week. Various festivals occurred throughout the year. We see the same things in our church today. Uh, for many years, Catholics couldn't eat fish on Friday. Many Protestants fast during Lent. Uh, other, uh, other churches do some other different things depending on the denomination. Uh, Paul tells us that those who follow them with the belief that those things make you spiritual or mature, they're wrong. Paul tells us that such things in ritualism is a shadow, he says, of things to come. Our hope is not in our religious habit or custom or ceremony. He says the substance belongs to Christ. What that means is since Christ has now come, special diets, mandatory holy days, all these different kind of ceremonies of the Old Testament have been fulfilled because Jesus Christ has come. And these things are just a shadow of what Jesus has done. We read of this in Hebrews 10 that tells us, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifice that continually be offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So ritual, rituals and customs and ceremonies have their place. They remind us who God is. They remind us what Jesus has done. That's why we celebrate Christmas. God sent Christ into the world. We remember the, the uh, Lord's Supper. We, as a reflection of Jesus' death on the cross. We celebrate Easter, Jesus rose from the bed. We worship together on Sunday because this is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. But these very same things that we do ritually can become religious ritualism if we simply do them out of habit, rather out of our heart. What does that look like in the church? Oh, this little quiet first. Well, in Sunday, it could be anything that distracts us from worshiping God. Like singing songs, worship songs without thinking about God. Looking around during prayer. Letting our minds wander during a sermon. <laughs> having discussions during the service. <laughs> the color of the paint on the walls, whatever. Anything that's distracting you, that is ritualism. In the church, we see that quite often. In the church, we see it in music and length of service, length of s sermon, where you sit in the sanctuary, 
ministries, staffing, business meetings, just put whatever you want. You know, all these things can end up being a ritual for us. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 15 when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. All rituals, all things that we do here are just shadows, brothers and sisters. You don't get to be more spiritually mature or a better Christian just by coming to church. Okay? That happens in your heart. All rituals, rituals are shadows. Jesus is the substance. Anything that takes his place is idolatry. The point is, Jesus has set us free from these things. The second form of religious legalism we often see in our lives in the church is mysticism. Paul writes, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Mysticism is the belief that the knowledge of God, the truth of God, and the reality of God can be attained through simply your personal experience with God. Paul points out this problem when he talks about the worship of angels and those who are puffed up without reason. In context, Paul here is addressing what's in Colossae what's known as a teaching of Gnosticism, which that word means knowledge, which held in his day that there was a hierarchy of angels between humans and God, which must be acknowledged and appeased, and that we could come to know God better through that experience of acknowledging and appeasing these angels. We see this today a bit in what we used to call the New Age movement. That's changed its name now. Now it's uh, spiritual. Everything is about spirituality, you know, spirit. Spirit this, spirit that. You're a very spiritual person. What does that mean? So that's Gnosticism. Um, there's There's a part of that that you may have even seen about this modern movement. It's called the oneness movement. The argument today is that we no longer can, don't have to be self-centered if we center ourselves on God. Sounds pretty good right then. Who will then fill us with the fullness of the knowledge of God, of the universe. There's no place in the Bible, but there you go. Paul calls this being puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind because the point of this still is self is at the middle of it. Whitney Houston saying, uh, to love yourself is the greatest love there is. Apparently our greatest potential is wrapped up in ourselves. I don't think so. so. The problem with mysticism is that the focus is on the wrong person again. Our focus should not be on angels or ourselves, but on God. And we can only see him through Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 48, God says, I will not give my glory to another. Sadly, we often see angel worship and self-centered spirituality in those who claim Christ. And Paul tells us here that those who believe such things have become disconnected from Jesus 
the head of the church. They are not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. When we hold to mystic beliefs in angels and experiential spirituality, we are cut off from the head, Jesus, and the body, the church, and we stop growing in our faith. But the metaphor even has a deeper meaning in that God's word warns us here that we must not seek to validate our knowing Jesus Christ by our own personal experience because you'll be outside of the head and the whole body of Christ. Because when a head is cut off, life is done. Deadness moves in. Much of what is written today, brothers and sisters, in the guise of Christian literature is based on self-perception, personal entitlement, and experiential faith. Here's where we need to heed the call of Sola Scriptura from the Reformation, which means the Bible, like Roger was saying, the Word of God is preeminent when we're looking for uh, definitions and standards. Our experiences can only be valid with the Word of God and by the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ as affirming those things too. Christ has set us free to live away from sin so we might focus on him and experience him, not experience us. The third form of religious legalism we often see in our lives in churches is called asceticism. If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle Do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Asceticism is defined as the practice of a strict self-denial as a measure of personal discipline and spiritual growth. The false teachers in Colossae saw asceticism as a way to curb their appetites. That all seems fine on the surface, but we all would agree, we all would agree we need discipline in pretty much every area of our lives. Amen? Not very loud. But they were teaching that asceticism was necessary to have true fellowship with God. According to church history, Anthony, the founder of the Christian monastic movement, never changed his vest or washed his feet his entire life. He was outdone by a man named Simon Stylites, who spent his last 36 years of his life on top of a 50-foot pillar. He mistakenly thought that if he withdrew from the world, he would be truly spiritual. The same thing is happening today in Mexico as people climb long stairways on bloody knees in order to pay homage to the Virgin of Guadalupe. The Word of God tells us that in Christ... We don't belong to this world anymore. 
we don't get to heaven by a, completing a list of do's and don'ts. So we shouldn't live our lives in Christ that way either. Heaven is not ours because of what we do or don't do. Heaven is ours because of what Christ did for us. In Christ, we are free. We don't have to, and we cannot do anything to earn God's favor. All we can do is receive it. In Christ, we are free. We no longer have to do anything for God. So now we are free to do everything for God. In Christ, we should want to do everything for God. Amen? Sacrificially, joyfully, passionately, powerfully, with mercy and grace and love, God is glorified by these things. Jesus has set us free by having to deny ourselves to earn his favor so that we might be free to deny ourselves and fully follow him. Religious legalism is built on a foundation of personal expectations and our expectations of God, our expectations of one another, our expectations of ourselves. But the problem is, that though we may be forgiven and saved by the cross of Christ, we are still habitually sinning, which means the standard of our personal expectations tends to be our fallen personal expectations, which become legalistic when it comes to our spiritual lives, which then confines us, that keeps us from being free from, from sin. A bishop once said to French King Louis, Make an iron cage for all those people who don't think as we do. Make that iron cage in such a way that they can neither sit down nor stand up. The king agreed and the cage was constructed. A short time later, the bishop offended the king. And the bishop spent his next 14 years in that cage. In Matthew 7, Two, Jesus said, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And the measure by which you measure will be measured to you. Brothers and sisters, God has given us so much more life that cannot be measured by our weak, selfish, human expectations. The Bible tells us God calls us to know Jesus and to follow Jesus and to serve Jesus so that we might know and follow and serve Jesus for the rest of our, rest of our lives with the Savior who loves us, with the Lord who guards us, with a, a spirit that guides us, with a God who gives mercy and grace without measure because of our free and legal standing before God. Christ has freed us from the expectations of people from the expectations and measure of the world in order that we might be free to live according to the expectations and measure of God. Over the years, I've had the privilege of working with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of men in prison. And I found their greatest struggle for most of them is the issue of freedom. Because they've broken the law, their freedom is taken away from them. And they serve time in prison waiting to be freed. I've been I've spent hundreds and hundreds of hours and when I usually talk to them, one of the first things they tell me is how much time they have left. Almost every one of them. Mm -hmm. 
I'm short. <laughs> I'm short. They measure everything according to the day when they may have freedom. Yet statistics tell us that 85% of men that go to prison and get out, within two years they'll be back. Why? Because they are living by their own expectations when they get out, rather than the expectations of God. They're not free. A number of inmates have said, you know, I'm in prison and I'm still free because I know Jesus and I live for him. Brothers and sisters, we at Aerosmith seek to passionately proclaim the glory of God in Christ for the joy of all people. Our hope rests on Jesus' work, not ours. His accomplishment, not ours. His strength, not ours. His victory, not ours. It's Jesus, the hope of glory that we follow. True Christianity is not a matter of what we do or don't do. True Christianity is a matter of what he has done. When Jesus died on the cross, what did he say? It's finished. It's all done. It's finished, brothers and sisters. The price has been paid. The legal debt's been erased. In Christ, we are complete. Now we can live. Now we can live for him. In Christ, we don't need to do anything more than that's already been done. In Christ, we not only have have victory over sin and death, we have freedom to live our lives for Jesus today and, and forever. We have a common calling, all of us. We are called to know Jesus. We're called to follow Jesus. We're called to serve Jesus, whether we are attenders of this church or members of this church or the lead pastor of this church or a future future interim pastor from this church that's serving other places in other ways. Amen? Amen. Father, we bless you today for the freedom that we have in you. We bless you for the, the truth of God's word. We bless you, Lord, for the callings that you put on our, our lives, which are for you, but also, Lord, we benefit in when you, what you've done for us. And so we pray, Lord, as we uh, think about our near future and the far future, that we would commit ourselves again to the callings that you've created for us, that you expect that we will work through them with you and each other. And Lord, just bless this church in the days ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.